everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Sebastian Kanovich, a pioneer in emerging markets payments and the CEO at D-Local. He spun off D-Local from Astropay in January 2016, creating the only 360 payments technology company, which handles pay-ins and payouts in emerging markets for some of the largest global e-commerce and marketplace companies. As the CEO of Astropay, prior to D-Local, he grew the company into a premier cross-border payment card provider that processes millions of transactions daily. Sebastián holds a bachelor degree in economics from Universidad Ort Uruguay. He also studied entrepreneurship, innovation, and management of technology at Tel Aviv University and completed a prestigious Endeavor Innovation and Growth Program at Stanford Graduate School of Business. He continues to be fascinated with how payments work around the world and was just a great guest on the show. And now, please join me in an inspiring conversation with Sebastian Kanovich. Welcome, Sebastian, and thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Can we start by uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself and your personal background? Sure, Miguel. Uh, thanks very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. So a little bit on, on me. Uh, I'm uh, Sebastian Kanovich. I'm Uruguayan. I've been living in Israel for four years now. I just turned 30 years old, literally yesterday. So I, I don't feel that young. <laughs> I don't feel that young anymore. And I've been uh, running uh, the local for the last eight and a half years now. This has been, to me, the experience of a lifetime. And it's uh, again, I'm, I'm super glad to have the chance to tell you a little bit more about our experience. Fantastic, fantastic. So did you grow up in Uruguay prior to you moving to Israel? I did, I did. I'm, I'm completely Uruguayan. Uh, I speak Spanish at home, I read the Uruguayan newspaper, I uh, watch Uruguayan football, so as, as Uruguayan as it gets, but I don't live there anymore. Got it. And what industry were you working at or what sectors were you covering prior to the local? <laughs> Look, Miguel, it's it's probably too much to say that I was covering anything before the local. I was working at Santander Bank, trading stocks and bonds. But again, I was very young. I was still in university, so it was more about uh, trying to get exposure to... I, I studied economics, so I wanted to understand how uh, what I was supposed to be doing. And I uh, very quickly, I realized that I wasn't born for that, found it uh, not challenging enough. Uh, and that's where the local came to exist. But uh, completely out of pure luck, it is, there, there was no strategic plan behind it where we say, okay, we have this huge vision. Uh, we saw a very small problem and we say, okay, let's try and solve it. And that problem has continued to expand uh, in the last eight years. Very interesting. And were you always considering entrepreneurship as a path? Some of the things you can look, you can look backwards, but you don't look uh, it much tougher to see ahead. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I still don't. Perhaps because I respect that idea too much. Uh, and I always felt that we were trying to build a company and that we would do our best. So, uh, no, we, we didn't have this, this crazy ambition of saying, okay, we're going to create the company that we actually did create in the end. It was more about, let's find a customer. Let's make sure that that customer is happy with us. Let's move to the next one. Let's ask them what else can we do for them. And that has been our story. The local has been... Today, we are a company which does more than $120 million in revenue a year, but we didn't start that way. And definitely, we weren't thinking that way when we started. We had a customer and we said, okay, let's solve for them and see how it goes. That's impressive. So let's, uh, let's take a step back and, and start from the beginning, right? You mentioned that you identified a small problem 
and you decided to do something to fix it. What was this small problem and how did you approach the first so, phase, the first months of Dilocal? Sure. So conceptually, one of our founders was working for a UK online company and he was a marketing manager. And he realized that there were more and more users coming from Brazil who wanted to buy online this UK company and they just couldn't. They didn't have a payment method to solve for that. Uh, so what we did is we came up with one single payment method. It's called Boleto, which is the, a cash-based method in Brazil. And we thought that was it. We thought that we've solved the whole problem. We had no idea about credit cards, bank transfers, not to mention that the issues that happened in Brazil happened across many other geographies and many other customers. So what we did is we, we came up initially with a prepaid card. So we were B2C. And we said, okay, let's make sure that the user will be able to buy that prepaid card and then they would be able to redeem it on the merchant cashier. Fast forward uh, a few years, we went to Arizona to meet with GoDaddy. Uh, and GoDaddy told us, look, we love what you do, but no one cares about your brand. You're not a B2C brand. Give me the payment methods behind. And that's the, essentially the origin of Dilocal. Dilocal has been for, for six years now a pure B2B play where we are as transparent as we can. We don't want the end user to know that they're paying uh, through us. That's friction. Our customers are the companies. It's Google, it's Facebook, it's Netflix. And there's nothing we like more than you buying through us and not knowing. Makes sense. Some of your top players are going to be e-commerce companies, some of your main clients. Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, Google. Uh, it's uh, by definition, the fact that our solution is uh, solely focused in emerging markets. It means that the, the companies that end up being relevant in Mexico, in India, in Turkey, in Morocco, end up being Facebook, Google, Uber, Netflix, Amazon. So it's uh, the really big guys. We've catered to those because those were the ones that were generally uh, generating traction in, in the markets where we were. How were they solving this problem before working with you? Were they doing it in-house? They didn't solve it. So historically, the, the way international merchants thought of it, they say, okay, I'm going to accept Visa and MasterCard globally. And when you do that, they tell you, you cannot accept payments in 190 markets. And you say, okay, that's it, no more challenges. But then when you start scratching the surface, you realize that your users in India want to pay with UPI, which is a unified payments interface that works from bank to bank in India. And users in Argentina want to pay with Rapipago, which is a cash method. And users in Mexico want to use OXO. So obviously you are accepting payments, but only for those who have the ability to pay you. So when they decide that, okay, we now take these markets for real, they do need an emerging market strategy. And that's where we come. That makes sense. And who are your partners? Who are your main partners? So we partnered up with two sets of players. Number one, it's banks. Half of what we do is investments, so payouts, the opposite flow of what I was mentioning. So Airbnb paying a, a host or Uber paying a driver or Didi paying a, a delivery guy. And for that, we rely on banks. So that's the first set of partners. The second set is the payment methods, the, the actual wallets, banking methods where we are very agnostic, we sit on top of them and we play more of an aggregator role where we don't have an agenda around preferring one or the other. We just say, okay, if you as user want to pay through this, go ahead. And take us through the evolution of the company. Sounds like you launched in Uruguay, I presume Montevideo. Uh, now you're a global company. How did this evolve over time? Miguel, I would love to tell you that we launched in Uruguay, but it wouldn't be true. Uh, yes, we are Uruguayans. Yes, our Today, as of now, our biggest office, we, we have a, a little bit more than 200 people in Uruguay. But Uruguay, it's a market that we started to do six months ago because no one cared. When GoDaddy came to us, they didn't say, give me Uruguay. They said, give me Brazil. So Brazil was our first market. 
And then the evolution has been, number one, adding more payment methods. So leaving the cash-based methods and including banks and wallets and credit card acquiring in each one of the markets. So that's the first evolution, what we would call product. Together with that evolution comes the idea of dispersing funds, not only collecting. And then there's the, the geographic footprint. We said Brazil first, then we went to Mexico, Argentina, some people have covered the whole of Latin America. And then we asked ourselves, okay, what do we do next? There was a question whether we should go to the U.S. and say, okay, let's, let's go compete in the U.S. And what we found out very fast was that the U.S. and Europe are very mature markets that have hundreds of payment providers. But the issues we were facing in Latin America existed in India and existed in Bangladesh and existed in Africa. So we said, okay, for us, it's a pure emerging markets play. Our vision is to make sure that users in any emerging markets, and that pretty much means not the US, not Europe, not China. China is not an emerging market uh, in, from, from a payments perspective. We need to have a way for them to pay. Uh, that has been the evolution. How many markets are you covering today and how big is the team? Marketing is going to kill me because I should have the, the, the exact number, but uh, 21, 21 or 22. The last market we launched was Bangladesh. The previous one was Nigeria. We are now 260 people very much distributed. The, the fact that our organization kind of by definition needs to be distributed in the sense that our merchants, our customers are in the US, are in Europe, are in China, but our end users are sitting pretty much everywhere. So we have teams on the ground in India, we have teams on the ground in Turkey, we have teams on the ground in uh, all of Latin America, and at the same time we have a big office in China. So it's a, it's a very distributed team, and I'm calling from Tel Aviv. So it's a, by definition we are very remote. Makes sense. So we talk a lot on this on this podcast about culture, about company culture, and whether that was something that you thought of at the very beginning and took deliberate steps to create a company culture, and how have you managed to maintain this culture as you grow as a company? Miguel, it's a great question. The, the first thing I need to say is that I'm super proud of the culture we have. And I think the fact that we, we, we took a slightly different path from the average BC-backed probably U.S. company. So we are bootstrapped 100%. Only last December, we brought our first institutional investor. So we always knew that we would build a company with our own tools and listening very closely to our customers and with our feet on the ground. We were always made sure that we were profitable. We always cared about being profitable. We always cared about having people who were looking for a challenge, who really cared about what we were doing. We were always very pro giving opportunities to people that otherwise probably wouldn't have had them, either because they were born in Uruguay or because they were born in Nigeria or because they were young or because they have some sort of weird studies or no studies. So we came to this culture more by trying, by doing multiple mistakes and seeing what we liked and what we didn't like. Uh, the fact that both me and the management team were very young meant that we did a lot of mistakes, but I think today we, we are very comfortable in our own skin. Uh, we know who we are as a company. We know who we are not as a company. And I think that's something when you walk into any of our offices, you can feel uh, very fast. What are some of your biggest challenges as you scale? Oof, how many hours do you have? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's, uh, it's, uh, it never gets easy. I always felt that, okay, when we go to this scale, it, it would be over. It would be, everything would be much easier. The thing is that you, you start to move faster, so there's more challenges. Uh, at the end of the day, our, our business depends on, on, on our team. You, you cannot, uh, this is not a business where you say, okay, or a company where you say, okay, I'm going to have a, this given patent that it's going to defend everything or this given uh, factory that's going to defend everything. We depend on our people. Now. We really depend on us finding and giving opportunities to more and more talented people. And that's what 
keeps me up at night the most. Then there's uh, we deal with customers' monies, so we need to make sure that compliance is working the right way, that security is working the right way, that we are expanding into new market the right way. But at the end of the day, the backbone is our people. So that's what drives me, what keeps me up at night. I'm interviewing and trying to meet as many people as we can and really trying to find those really talented individuals who, who, who can help us. You mentioned that recently you brought your first institutional investor. Uh, what drove that decision? We brought the General Atlantic on board. There were a few things we really liked them about them. Number one is that they are a global player, so we really like their scale. And they did have a lot of experience with a bunch of payments companies that, that we respect a lot, uh, particularly Adian, uh, which is a company we really respect, we compete with, but we really respect. And we did like their experience working with them. Uh, so we were generally thinking about a partner that would add value from uh, really bring us to the next level. And, and we wanted to test ourselves. Sometimes when, when the whole market is it's raising funds, you say, okay, well, well, at, at some point we, we need to do it to prove ourselves that we can also do it. Uh, we did it. We are super happy with the partner we have. That was the driving force behind it. That makes sense. And, and tell us a little bit about your view of the fintech market these days. I mean, obviously, we're going through a major crisis, right? Um, there are some silver linings, particularly on the fintech space, uh, that are coming out of this crisis. Uh, what's your take on this situation? We are super bullish. We believe a lot on, on this space. Uh, obviously, it's a space where you need to move fast. You need to have the ability of execute, to execute. Otherwise, what I like the most about the fintech space is that it's generally global. You can have a new player coming out from Africa, from Asia, from China, and suddenly you are competing with someone who you've never heard of. And it's something I love because it, you don't need to be the best of Uruguay. You don't need to be the best of Latam. You generally need to test yourself against anyone. I tend to believe that fintech I do believe we are on the right side of the economy in terms of, of all the obvious trends that are happening. Digitalization obviously helps uh, most of the fintech plays. The fact that in our particular space, the fact that emerging markets are becoming more relevant, Chinese companies are not going to find growth in China. U.S. companies are going to ha have it very hard to find growth in the U.S. Uh, their growth is going to come from the markets where we operate. So we, we, we like the trends. Obviously, the fact that there's a wave doesn't mean that you're going to be the one surfing it. You need to stay up with it. But uh, we are extremely optimistic. We cannot blame the market for that that we won't be able to do. That's for sure. And I'm assuming you're working remotely along with the entire team. How has this experience been for the company? So personally, for me, uh, I've, I've been remote uh, from our headquarters for more than four years now. So it's a little bit more natural. The Uruguay office, the, there's this whole culture of being together and doing barbecues and, and, and really, really being close. Uh, so that's probably the office that is suffering the most. The reality is that we don't expect to go back to what was previously by any means. Uh, we ran the survey with, with our team and, and more than 90% said that they wanted an hybrid where they would still wanted to go to the office, but they wanted to have the flexibility of some days staying at home. We were prepared. The fact that we had the China office also meant that we saw it coming a little bit earlier. So. There's China, I live in Israel, then came the US and then Latin, Latam. So we, we, we saw it probably a, a few weeks before and we are liking it. And, and probably we are gonna, we're gonna continue this way. Uh, we, are, we are just now, we, before the crisis, we were thinking of, of opening a, a development hub in Buenos Aires. And now we changed that definition, we made it remote. Our second development hub, historically it's all been done in Uruguay. From now onwards, the second hub is gonna be anywhere. And that's something I really like, I, I feel it's, it's not only going to be a, a big differential for us, but also it gives opportunities to people that otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't have had. 
Very interesting. Very interesting. It seems like that's uh, a trend that's going to take off for several companies. How about on the on the business side? How do you envision the future of DLCAL going forward? We've got a lot to do. Uh, I mentioned the Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, Google, but I didn't mention others. And those others are the ones that bother us. And, and we really want to make sure that uh, if you are a big company internationally, we, we want to be partnering up with you. Uh, we are always developing new products. So the way I said, we did payments, we did payouts. We are going to be announcing a chargeback protection very soon. So uh, one of the challenges when dealing with, with the markets where we operate, it's, it's the, the fraud risk and the chargeback risk. And the reality is that we have a lot of experience with that because we've been seeing data for, for multiple years now. So we are, before it was, we did it as an added value. We feel that we now have a product that's strong enough to say, okay, this is a new vertical. We've done a lot uh, through marketplaces and, and we are very excited with that. So the Shopify's of this world, we think there's huge space in that ecosystem. And the last is geographies. I mentioned 21 geographies now. I, I double-checked it uh, during the call. And there's... 20, 30 other markets where we want to be in the next uh, two, three years. So it's uh, there's a lot to go. Exciting times. Uh, Definitely. I know that you don't consider yourself a, an entrepreneur, but you still have been on the front lines of entrepreneurship. Uh, we have a lot of listeners interested in, in this topic and maybe some aspiring founders. Uh, would you mind sharing some of your reflections of building a company from scratch? I think it's uh, you need to enjoy it. It's not every day. There are some days you're going to feel terrible and you think that you are the worst in the world and nothing can go your way. But you really need to enjoy. You need to enjoy. You need to fall in love with the with the process. Otherwise, there's nothing that's going to give you that uh, back because we put a lot of hours into this and you really need to like it. I personally get a lot of energy from working with the team. I love the idea of waking up and working with our team. I feel proud of who I wake up and have calls with and, and who uh, I get challenged by. Uh, and that's the only the only thing I would say. I, I don't think there are receipts. It's not cooking a cake where you say you, you need to put uh, this amount of, of flavor and, and it's going to come out. Uh, I think everyone has its own path. But the only thing I can think of or the, the time I do it, if, if I ever do it again, uh, I, I, I want to make sure I really like what I'm doing because there's no alternative for that. Before we go, and, and this has been fantastic, Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your hobbies outside of work. Uh, how do you spend some of your time outside of the local? I don't know if you see the uh, people are not going to see it, but you can see the, the the picture of Jordan on his last shot. I, I uh, can see that, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I used to play basketball. I'm an NBA junkie. I can consume crazy amounts of NBA, too many hours. I read a lot. I mentioned I just turned 30 and I got a, a big, uh, I forgot the word in English, but the live, not library, bookshelf. bookshelf. A big book sure. stand from, from my wife. And then I love to spend time with friends. I'm still very much a Latin American, South American, Uruguayan. And, uh, and we care about our friendships. We care about our family. And when we spend a lot of time with them. Thank Sorry you. to disappoint uh, if it's boring. No, 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 no. <laughs> By the way, we, we do have quite a few founders who are readers, avid readers. So that seems to be a common topic that I'm seeing. Yes, I don't read business. That's a, almost a personal rule. I try to, when I read, I really want to disconnect and read other, other sorts of, of stuff. I read a lot of biographies, history, but not necessarily business books. I think that goes back to that idea that I'm not a big believer on written formulas, but obviously there's a lot to be learned there, but personally I have a bias towards uh, other type of, uh, of literature. Well, so uh, thank you again for joining us. It's been a treat and I'm sure our, our listeners will very, very much enjoy this conversation.
Miguel, thank you very much. Congrats on the podcast. It's definitely very impressive. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armas.